Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nothing is Real, a Beatles podcast, is powered by Acast. Nothing is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. And this is the third part of our triple podcast about that great triple album, All Things Must Pass. And we've already looked at uh, George Harrison's road to uh, his starting work on the album in May 1970. We focused in on uh, the big hit song, My Sweet Lord. And today we're going to pick up the album, give it a shake and, and see what uh, falls out. It's a, it's a Herculean task, isn't it, Stephen? It is, but it's an enjoyable task, and it's what we've been waiting for across three whole series. This is—it's all been leading to this moment, and you know, like like they say, when you're eating an elephant, you just have to take it one bite at a time. So, let's. Is that eat. what they say? That is that is a very famous phrase. So let's eat the elephant. That is, all things must pass, and um, you know, we're going to look at the individual component parts of the album. It's uh, curious that we don't really have a. Mark Lewison type overview of the structure of what happened. We know that he did his demos for Phil in May 1970. They recorded till about October 1970. The album comes out um, at the end of November. Um, but we're, we don't really have a strict chronology of events, sure we don't. No, um, uh, you know we have lots of anecdotal evidence of so the various players that have been there: uh, Eric Clapton, Peter Frampton, Bobby Whitlock. They've all, in their various memoirs and autobiographies touch on the sessions and, and, and give a little insight. Um, the closest that you might get to a chronology is looking at the, the, the tracks that feature the heavy hand of Phil Spector um, because he sort of drifts in and out of the project. And we know that sort of towards the end of the recording session, he was uh, in New York and sending notes back to George and George took over the production. So um, I, I suppose as a rule of thumb, you, know, you could say that the, the, the heavier wall of sound tracks probably come at the beginning of the sessions so yeah um so i think no better place to start then is to you know obvious is you take out the album and the first record you take out and put on is apple jam the third record in the box set that is all things must pass so it's that's what i do <laughs> so no um, i don't uh, the apple jam is i have to say from my point of view it is my most unlistened part of All Things Must Pass. And people talk about it being this mighty, mighty triple album. But there's a large chorus of people who uh, may not listen to 33% of this triple album. That Apple Jam is the, the most unplayed part. You, you, you believe it's maligned, Stephen? Sometimes I don't even know who you are. <laughs> are you um... saying Side 6 gets as much airtime in your house as Side 1? 
perhaps not as much, but it does get played. Um, but then we established, uh, you know, several episodes ago, or possibly right at the beginning of this this podcast <laughs> escapade. Uh, escapade, that you know you don't like the band, you don't like the lady and Bonnie, you don't yeah. like that authentic, you like pop stuff. Yeah, so um, I can I can see based noodling yeah, isn't my um, isn't doesn't float your boat. It's not my main bag, you know. It's uh, but. You know, I suppose. Often, you, I, I suppose the thing. The thing for me is uh, the the Eric Clapton, Derek, and the Dominoes connection because that, you know, kind of growing up, that Layla album was such a kind of um, uh, just influential album. It was like at school you had you know before punk hit. That was one of the albums that everybody had. It was it 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 was just. Um, that kind of southern rock with Clapton and uh, um, Bobby Whitlock, and and this, the Apple Jam uh, two sides sort of feed into that feel and and that those musicians and I suppose I do have a bit of a soft spot. No, that's fair uh, enough. And an Apple Jam is uh, as a, it's a third disc. It's twenty nine minutes long. It's four main jam tracks and a fifth track of It's Johnny's Birthday, which yeah. has popped up before uh, on, on an episode because George recorded that for John Lennon's birthday. Yes. And very sweetly this year, I don't know if you saw this, the George Harrison estate put out a little animation on John Lennon's 80th birthday. I saw that. Animated to It's Johnny's Birthday. So, um, so that, that was very sweet. Um, but each Apple Jam comes from a different group, doesn't it? So it's not all Derek and the Dominoes. They're just on one of them, aren't they? Yes, this is a, it's sort of a collection of, of different, uh, we, we talked about the different sort of configurations of the two main core bands, and then you had players drifting in and out, and uh, one of these jams features uh, Ginger Baker, who, to the best of my knowledge, does not feature on the main um, album, so you've, you know, you've got Dave Mason, Klaus Vorman, Derek and the Dominoes, all of these people are drifting in and out, and this is a collection um, and a, a sort of a representative representative selection of, of, of the various players and Klaus Vorman makes the point, you know, they had, there was no pressure. There was no time pressure. They had time to do this. Somebody would just start playing something and they'd all sort of join in. And it's, it's fantastically well recorded. You know, it's as well recorded as anything else on the album. And, and um, it, you know, it hopefully is, the, the box set is going to have another hour and a half of this. Hopefully. Well, it, it is very well recorded and, I, you know, we don't know yet exactly, you know, this 29 minutes that we have on the album. We don't know how much more of it no. uh, there is. And I think, you know, I'm right in saying in the original album, uh, it didn't have, uh, I think it was all credited to George Harrison in terms of writing. And it seems in the 2001 reissue, it, it's all credited to the actual individual players. I was looking at the sleeve notes to the 2001 issue today, and it seems to, okay. it seems to have an individual breakdown that isn't there on the, uh, on the, on the first one. But yeah, Apple Jam is, you know, I, 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 I slag it off and, you know, I'm, I'm saying, is it unlistened to or is it, is it unnecessary? You know, I, I've gone back to it again for the, I've probably listened to it more in preparation in for this week. than I have in the last 30 odd years. And the thing that struck me about it is that it, it's, even if you don't listen to it a lot, it's what it represents. And it represents very specifically something that George could do that John and Paul could not do. Yeah. And, you, you know, you, something that we've come back to talking about, particularly talking about McCartney album and this album is how people approach it and the filters that they come through. And, you know, McCartney's album 
you know, comes as a surprise and comes in the breakup. Whereas George's album is preceded by My Sweet Lord. It's this gateway song. And then you're looking at this package and you listen to these two fantastic records full of songs and you get the third record and it's this jam. And we know how bad a Beatles jam sounds. We've got yeah. tapes from January yeah. 1969. And this was something, again, George has proven something in the first two discs. And then the third disc, he's proving another thing, you know, almost to say, you know, and I can play guitar and I can jam and, you know. Yes, that, I mean, that, that really hadn't occurred to me until you, you sort of outlined that theory that, that this is really him showing, look, I, I can do this and I can collaborate. I mean, what I would say is that George was always very candid about the fact that, you know, he wasn't an Eric Clapton. He wasn't, mm. uh, that improvisation was, you know, is, is not his style. Um, he doesn't come from that blues tradition. And, you know, all of the sort of stories that you hear about him in the studio, particularly sort of from Jeff Emmerich, are George very painstakingly working out the guitar part. It's not a case of he just goes in, turns up the amp and, and solos and improvises. So he is, I suppose, possibly the most out of place person in 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 the room when these jams are starting but yeah he's 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 there and he's kind of holding his own and uh, interestingly i know we we want to talk for the next hour or so just about (laughs) each individual track on apple jam but it's it's interesting the points where he takes the lead and who is playing the guitar and who is sort of coming to the fore in each particular uh track but yeah I i think that's right i mean we 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 talked a lot in the first episode about the collaborative nature of what he was doing Mm. um, in the run-up to making the album. And this is just another perfect example. And these are musicians essentially playing for themselves, I think. So let's let's just quickly run through these tracks. And it depends on which year or which version of All Things Must Pass you're listening to as to uh, what order you get the the songs in. So the original order is, uh, I remember Jeep is the opening jam. Uh, yep. Jeep is Eric Clapton's dog and this is the one that's got Ginger Baker Klaus Vorman Eric Clapton George Harrison and Billy Preston that's so it that's a, a that's a good mix and, then and this is the one that I think you can also hear the electronic sound album. yeah I didn't realize that that those kind of electronic noises are from uh, electronic sound you I, think I, I think so I, I will hold my hand up and say I have not sat down to play electronic sound <laughs> That's the same time as I'm playing this. But it does seem to me that, that this is post-production. Right. Where electronic sound is being sort of faded up and faded in and out. Um, and again, that's that's quite an innovative uh, thing for the time. A bit of self-sampling. Yeah. Um, Thanks for the Pepperoni is Bobby Whitlock, Carl Rattle, Dave Mason, Eric Clapton, George Harrison and Jim Gordon. Yeah. Um, uh, the- and that's kind of a rollover Beethoven type style riff, classic rock it and is, roll form. It is. And the interesting thing about that track is Clapton is just in the background playing rhythm guitar and it's George that starts off the track mm. because, you know, rollover Beethoven, that's something he's comfortable with. He's, yeah. he's, he's on firm ground there. So his guitar is featured at the beginning and then towards the end, it's or in the middle, um, it's Dave Mason and then George comes back in at the end. So Clapton is just, just taking a kind of rhythm part there. And then Plug Me In is essentially the same kind of Derek and the Dominoes collective again. So they're working because don't Derek and the Dominoes initially work with Phil Spector? Isn't that what happens? Yes. So that 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 grouping that became Derek and the Dominoes first got together as sort of do sessions for a P.P. Arnold album. And then they're drafted in as one of the core bands for All Things Must Pass. And 
sort of a trade-off. Eric says to George, uh, you know, we're here and we're working on your album. Can we use Phil Spector to produce something for us where we're, we've sort of forming this band? Um, and so they record two tracks, uh, Tell the Truth and Roll It Over. And those are the first Derek and the Domino recordings, although Dave Mason and George Harrison appear on those. Right. Um, if you if you were to get, for example, there's an album called The History of Eric Clapton, Tell the Truth is on that, and George gets credit as a as a rhythm guitar player. Mm. Um, they're hard to find. Uh, th- these were re- produced by Phil Spector, released as a single, um, and then withdrawn because Clapton decided he didn't like the... Uh, so, but I think they turn up on compilations on the Clapton crossroads. Tell the truth is is taken it. It's, it ends up on Layla. Roll it over. I think doesn't make any other appearance. It's kind of X-rated uh, lyrics. You should be warned. Oh dear. Well, we won't be playing that here. Um, no. And then you have it's Johnny's birthday, which is just George Mal Evans and Eddie Klein. And I, 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 well, we should talk about the songwriting credits for it's Johnny's birthday. Yes, George. George has just terrible form in the plagiarism stakes. But um, uh, this is this is basically a, a lift on congratulations by uh, Sir Cliff Richard and Cliff as he was then, um, which was a 1968 Eurovision Song Contest uh, entry for the UK. Uh, congratulations, it came second. Yeah. Um, produced by Nori Paramore. Oh, right. Uh, George Martin's arch rival. But anyway. They, they, they just take that and they change uh, the lyrics. And um, Phil Coulter and Bill Martin were the authors and they had to, you know, file a claim in December 1970 <laughs> um, against George for royalties. And as a result, uh, all the subsequent pressings added uh, them and basically said new lyrics by Mal Evans, George Harrison and Eddie Klein. Yeah, I, I remember when I, um, when I got my first copy of All Things Must Pass in the late 80s, and I saw Phil Coulter's name on it. And if you're <laughs> Irish, Phil Coulter has a very specific type of um, reference point, you know. He, and he plays the piano very well, but not very fast. Yeah. He, well, in the, in the <laughs> 60s and 70s, he wrote these fantastic pop songs for Cliff Richard and the Bay City Rollers and all the rest. In the 1980s, he sort of reinvented himself as Ireland's Richard Claderman type figure, yeah. where he would make this very Muzaki type instrumental um albums that were in the cars of mums up and down the country on tape yeah. and uh, he made a packet for it so when I got my All Things Must Pass Classic Tranquility by Phil Coulter was the big hit album <laughs> yeah, my mum my, my, my had that in her car yeah, yeah. and uh, so I kind of learnt the whole backstory of Phil Coulter through I was like, oh, he's actually got a, he's, a, he's you know. He he's, sat he, in a room with George Harrison. and You see, that it creates a completely. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, I think he's an extraordinary talent, Phil Coulter, and he's, he's written some amazing songs. Um, uh, can we, and, can we talk, talk briefly about Eddie Klein? Oh, yeah, go on. Um, so we, everyone knows who Mal Evans was, but Eddie Klein was at the Apple Studios technical manager, and he worked on All Things Must Pass and Imagine, but he became Paul's go-to guy. Um he, he had a kind of backroom role on Wings Wildlife. He mixed London Town, mixed Back to the Egg. Uh, he was the one that set up the 16 track for McCartney 2, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, he pops um, up in McCartney 2. He plays a big role in yeah, that. He's in the yeah, archive yeah. edition. But you think it's Johnny's birthday must have been a nice little earner for, for him. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the final track on Apple Jam is Out of the Blue. Obviously, um, 
inspiring Jeff Lynn a few years down the line to Well, we can't blame George for that, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm not prepared. Uh I this is this is a track that that you know, it's just completely made up. And again, interesting who's playing the guitar on this. George it's Klaus Vorman, isn't it? And Klaus Vorman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it has that, I don't know if you know the Stone song, Can't You Hear Me Knocking? Yeah. There's a kind of extended, slightly jazzy coda to that. And this this reminds me very much of that. So, so that's Apple Jam. And so, you know, maybe it's not your most listened to disc out of your triple All Things Must Pass vinyl. But, um, you know, um, Stephen doesn't really... Uh, have any truck with the apple no, jam I, bashing I, I, no i think I, I i you know i think it's an integral part of the uh, uh of the package and there was a a webinar uh just at the end of last week yeah. um where olivia uh, harrison was on talking about sort of the reissue and people were trying to get information out of her and she said <laughs> oh there's lots and lots of tapes and uh somebody said well you know will, will there be outtakes and demos and she said lots of demos Lots of alternative versions and lots of jams. So expect more Apple Jam. <laughs> more Apple Jam. Well, it's you know I am glad it's there. I think it is, as you say, an integral part of things. You know, in you know twenty first century, it would have been you know, the limited edition disc yeah. that came with the first ten thousand copies, and it would have been forgotten about, and we we we'd think about things um, differently. But it is yeah. interesting in in the CD afterlife of uh, All Things Must Pass. You know, in the first CD reissue. It's the second disc. They cram the first mm. two records onto the first disc. And then in the 21st century, All Things Must Pass CD, it's crammed on the end of disc two. So there's loads yeah. of, it's, it's kind of, it's treated as bonus tracks on the 2001 it, CD yeah. in a way, it, it, which it I don't does, really like. It does sort of appear. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, they, we maybe come on to this, but they yeah. sort of stick the new bonus tracks on the end of disc one and split the thing up. And yeah, it's, it, 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 it's, it's a bit odd. Um, the way they the way they approach that, but I think Apple Jam, it it sort of gives you an insight a, into the sessions, you know. And if you have any interest in, and I know you don't, um, <laughs> in in Derek and the Dominoes, Bobby Whitlock, Delaney and Bonnie, that whole kind of uh, early 1970, 71, 72 style yeah. of music, and you know, you know, Layla as an album, Derek and the Dominoes, not successful when it was released, so. Even at the time, but but with hindsight, this is this is the origins story yeah. of of that that band, you know. So let's get uh, onto the main part of the show. Uh, All things must pass. The first two albums, side one, track one, and again, we're coming back to this notion of how this album is interpreted. There's a number of big brassy songs that the album could have opened with, yeah. um, a big noisy Spectre productions, but instead. It's a very sweet, subtle opener with uh, I'd Have You Anytime. That's, yeah. It's always interesting to see the statement of intent by putting a song like that up front. I, I think this is more to do with the authorship of the song than the sound of the song. You know, this is, it is a very low key start to what is a big, big personal statement of an album. And I think this is George basically announcing to everybody, uh, I am writing with Bob Dylan. Yeah. Um, you know, he front and center, he puts him right. I am on the same level as Bob Dylan. Arguably Dylan at that stage is the only kind of rock star bigger than the Beatles, bigger than Lennon and McCartney. Um, and, and George is just making it clear. And, and a lot of this album, as you say, is, is about putting a lot of clear blue water between himself and the Beatles in terms of the sound, in terms of everything. And this is, it's a, Len, it's a Harrison Dylan co-write that opens the album. 
Yeah, and you know, you can't imagine um, you know Paul or John writing a writing with Dylan like that. No. You know, and you know we've talked before about this kind of George's the place his head was at at the start of '69. Um, you know, where he's had this kind of he's had his first kind of significant interaction with Bob Dylan. And he's going to interact with them again throughout 1969 yeah. at, at the Isle of Wight. Uh, and the thing I was thinking about was it's it's interesting how a year earlier, at the start of 68, George is very much directing um, the Beatles in terms of the spirituality. He's driving the India stuff. He's driving the transcendental yeah. meditation. He's, you know, they're, they're going off to see the Maharishi. And a year later, he feels that he doesn't have any, if, he, he, he can't really inspire them to, follow what he wants to do if he indeed wants to do anything at the start of January 69 he, he's gone from a sense of control in some ways or a sense of being involved influence, to, yeah, yeah. His, his influence uh, is kind of totally different at the start of 69 compared to 68 yes I, I, I think a lot of this I mean if you really want to kind of dig into the psychology of it I think I think the the sort of the fall from grace of the Maharishi um, plays a big part in that that um, you know if you think about that song not guilty. He's he's sort of saying, you know, not guilty for leading you astray on the road to Mandalay. That entire song is a kind of, you know, don't blame me. Yeah. Uh, that this turned out to be a dead end, and um, you know, he goes to Woodstock. He hangs out with the band. We touched again on that sort of sense of camaraderie that he found there that 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 he was so admiring of, and you can hear him throughout the the get back sessions. Um, uh, you, you know, referring to the band and referring back to to that, and he just he just can't get them there for various reasons. You know, Paul's not interested. Yeah. You, you know, the band or Paul is the anti-band. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, John is is kind of strung out, and he's not interested. He's got other fish to yeah. fry. You know, so yeah, there's a frustration. And. You know, we know that, you know, it's a lifelong friendship between George and Bob Dylan. You know, this is the the first Travelling Wilburys collaboration in a way yeah. um, that the, that they're there. And but George, you know, I, I know you kind of have this notion that he's kind of creating the 70s rock star template, you know, this kind of collaborative, spiritual, early 70s rock star thing. Yes, yes. I mean, so, so although, although it's a solo statement, he's bringing in his kind of his heavy friends uh, to help out and they don't come bigger or heavier than Bob Dylan. And, um, you you know, I think there is a degree of calculation Mm. about putting the Dylan song right front and center, first track, bang. Um, He's basically declaring, you know, I'm a good songwriter. I am on a level with Bob Dylan. And Dylan always treated him as an equal in a way, in a way that, John and Paul didn't because hey, they they knew him when he was thirteen, fourteen years old. They grew up with him. He was just the kind of snotty kid. But at that stage, Dylan wasn't collaborating with people either, really. No, like I mean, he was Dylan, he had the band as a as a vehicle, but yeah. he wasn't uh, you know he wasn't known for an awful lot of co-writes in that way. No, I mean sixty eight was his kind of post motorcycle accident and uh, John Wesley Harding. And if you think about it, you know we again we touched on this the influence of John Wesley Harding post Pepper mm. post Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Beatles bought into that. Yeah. Um, but it's fascinating that it is George is the one that was able to break through. Paul, I think, just has too much of a pop sensibility to really go after that Dylan mm. thing. Lennon probably has too much of an ego 
Yeah, well, we had the uh, Lennon. Like everyone thought Lennon and Dylan were the the the, the matchup, you know, when things like Eat the Document and all that stuff that yeah. happened in the sixties. That they were supposed to be the two who would hang out. And George and Bob make more sense, or they they they, 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 they do. do I mean, you work. can see, yeah, you can see Lennon and Dylan, particularly in sixty five, sixty six, kind of circling each other and being mm. just wary of each other. And to say, I think each of them at that stage has too much of an ego. Um, to 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 get the best or allow to allow that kind of collaboration so the album kind of slinks open um with uh, i'd have you anytime track two on side one is my sweet lord should we do another hour on my sweet lord i, I, I think we could at least do another hour on <laughs> there, my there's sweet more lord. to be to be said on it um but you can pause now and go back and listen to last week's episode again if you want and then side one track three is and here's where the kind of that big yeah. all things must pass thing kicks in and it's so you know you could have put a big opener like wawa up front but they didn't it's a build and then here comes wawa and yeah, you can you you kind of get it's like being hit by a kosh you know you, <laughs> you, you kind of get sandbagged by this track after the low-key opening and as we progress through all things must pass i, I i'm going to say that there are certain songs that were that could possibly have been done by the Beatles, uh, but they yeah. weren't presented. And then there were songs that were absolutely rejected by the Beatles. And this one falls yeah. into the possible camp because this is famously written in January 69. Yes. Yes. So what George says, I mean, this is a direct quote. He says, this was written during the Let It Be fiasco. Um, I remember Paul and I were having an argument. The crew carried on filming and recording us. Anyway, after one of those very first mornings, I couldn't stand it. It wasn't fun. Wawa was a headache as well as a, oh, a type uh, of guitar, guitar pedal. pedal. Yeah. yeah, it was written during the time in the film where John and Yoko were freaking out, screaming, I left the band, gone home, and I wrote this tune. So um, this is his uh, expression of frustration of what was happening. Um, it, uh, you know, you know I, I, in fantasy Beatleland, it'd be great if when eventually he did walk back into the, the get back sessions, if he'd said, okay, you want me back? Here's my song, and he kicked into that riff, and Ringo would have um, gone in, I, and because it insist, has that kind I, of I've got a feeling, kind of yeah, arpeggiated yeah. riff vibe. You it, know, it, it could have been in there. It could have been. You you think he should have said, right? This is my condition: is that we play this, that uh, Paul sings the harmony, and we're going to do it on. <laughs> we're going to open with it on the roof, uh, because basic basically, you know, it's a song about paul it's a song about the beatles it's it's a song about his disillusionment yeah there are other other songs on the album that are more explicitly about paul but but this this was prompted by the argument with paul um and it's just venting and he's he's scathing in this song about the whole the beatle thing yeah uh let's say they're at the right time cheaper than a dime all those kind of lyrics yeah you made me such a big star and and, and remember this is written written well before John is writing, yeah. I don't believe I don't believe in in Beatles, and this is the first song uh, recorded for the album. Uh, so, and this is Phil Spector at his best, or I suppose at his worst, depending on your <laughs> depending point on of view. Him. You know, you've got George and Clapton and the three guitar players from Badfinger, Bobby Keys. It's it's huge, and I have to say, I this is a song, I an arrangement I don't much care for. I think okay. this this is overpowering when it hits you i like the song i've uh, there are other better versions of it um but but uh, it, it is just overpowering i find and we do have a version with paul on it which is the concert for george version yes and um you know you you wonder you know what did paul think when it was playing 
He probably thought nothing. He probably doesn't know. He probably doesn't know. But yeah, this is this is my 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 fun fact. Uh, it was the first <laughs> song recorded for All Things Must Pass. It yep. was the first song played by George at the concert for Bangladesh. And apart from Joe Brown's final song, it was the last sort of big ensemble song played at the concert for George. And it is so, it is it is a great uh, version of that. And I I think the concert for George version is great. The, yeah. the, the Bangladesh version is good. And but I thought it was fascinating that Clapton put the song you know he was the musical director and i'm assuming that it was the big finale yeah you know the big finale you're you you know you've heard something you've heard while my guitar gently weeps here comes the sun and you're thinking what what are they going to end with and then suddenly wow wow you know but uh, yeah but i I think that i know we've spoken about this before i mean i I think the concert for george is a fantastic uh, recording and you know george had this fantastic songbook but, you know, in the live arena, he never got the road legs no, to, to figure no. out, you know, a decent set list or where, you know, how to order or scan those things. So, um, you know, Clapton obviously would, would be uh, rather skilled at that. So then we go on to side one, track four, Isn't It a Pity? And this is a song, number one, that's rejected by the Beatles. So it, it, it does um, it, it does appear in January 69, doesn't it? It, do, it does. Um, and and it, maybe in... before? It may be before that because you 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 hear there is a a conversation during the get back sessions where George is saying oh recalls that John had vetoed mm. isn't it a pity three years before and um, if you go back if you a couple of sources if you look at Jeff Emmerich's book which I obviously don't recommend um, <laughs> he says it was it was offered for inclusion uh, on Sgt Pepper. But Mark Lewison says it was actually presented the year before during the sessions for Revolver, which would tie in in early 69 with George saying to John, you, you turned this down three years ago. And it's unbelievable that this was turned down yeah. uh, by the Beatles in 66, never mind in, in 69, when they had a dearth of material in 69. I mean, if that song was written in '66, which apparently it was, it's it's extraordinary. It 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 it, it comes from the same uh, genetics as "Long, Long, Long." This kind of yes, slow, yes. soulful George uh, song. So you know, you could definitely see it fitting into the White Album. It's really hard to imagine that its genesis goes back to the era of. Taxman and Good Day Sunshine, you know. Yeah, it would it would be fascinating to to sort of speculate or to hear what a revolver era arrangement of that song uh, would would be like. And uh, I mean, I've said this before, but you know, it's it's an incredibly mature lyric, yeah, to have been written, you know, by somebody in his early early twenties in '66. Um, you know, it's a very kind of non judgmental commentary on a failing relationship you yeah. know uh, and it, it's generally taken by every all of the critics and all of the commentators seem to think well it's a it's a commentary on the disintegration of the beatles but if it was written in in 66 um that's not the case yeah there's a lot of nice things that have been written about the song um uh, rolling stone said it's the music of mountaintops and vast horizons which is a quote that i like a lot that's a feeling you yeah. get a lot from all things must pass this yeah. kind of yeah um, you know, you think of cartoon George in Yellow Submarine kind of standing on the mountaintop with, uh, yeah, you know, everything yeah. kind of waving behind him. Uh, but it does have that kind of uh, feeling. Uh, and again, there's a huge number of people uh, playing on this. So it's got um, maybe the largest number um, 
because uh, obviously, isn't it a pity it appears in two versions? It, it it does. So he kind of combines the two the two core bands. So you've got Ringo and Klaus and Billy Preston and uh, Eric and uh, Eric Clapton and Bobby Whitlock and Gary Wright and and, and you've got brass and strings and and a male choir and. Uh, Badfinger are there, so it, this is this is this is this is everybody is 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 there. Um, possibly uh, Morris Gibb is there from the Bee Gees. He claims to be playing piano on the songs, but given that there are possibly four keyboard players, who who can tell? And Peter Frampton has a big role in this. Uh, I know he's all over the album, but he's on this one in a big way, isn't he? Yes, he is. Uh, Frampton is one of the sort of masked ranks of of, of acoustic. Um, guitars and he he's got a new uh, book uh, autobiography out and he, he deals at some length with with all things must pass um he says he was involved in five of the basic tracks alongside badfinger um and then he said he he recounts that after the album was finished george phoned him up and said phil needs more guitars will you come <laughs> back and he ends up sort of sitting on a stool side by side with george harrison while they're kind of overdubbing acoustic guitars and uh you know the book that he has out is is really uh you know it's a fascinating read because he just he just suddenly is dropped into this world and he, mm. he's kind of suddenly hanging out with uh the stones and the beatles and and this is long before years before his his sort of big the heyday of his commercial success in, in the 70s but um so yeah he he's contributing to this um you know possibly those overdub sessions jams Maybe maybe they exist uh, somewhere. Might not get them yet. Yeah. Um, and isn't it a pity? You know, you could look at it two ways. Is it a song about the Beatles? You know, where you know we break each other's hearts, and isn't it a pity? Um, or there's George, has George said it's about Patty? Uh, yeah. There, there, there's. I turned up um, an interview that he and Eric did, which is slightly awkward interview where he and Eric are sitting side by side uh, promoting in Japan promoting yeah. the, the, the it's, it's like it's t- done the, on a video camera or something yeah, it's a very yeah, strange kind of that's thing that's it and this is in December 91 when he's in Japan and they start talking about something and uh, you know written by Patty and George is being a little bit oh well not really And but I wrote other songs and this, Eric says what else and he goes uh, isn't isn't it a pity so he you know, and if you look, it, it's it's the lines are, isn't it a pity, isn't it a shame how we break each other's hearts and cause each other pain, how we take each other's love without thinking anymore, forgetting to give back. And you can see, right, well, that could be about a yeah. relationship. Yeah. And it, it, it did occur to me that perhaps the reason why it appears twice on the album is it, it, it bears those two separate meanings. Um, right. I would say maybe the, the second shorter version is is more easily interpreted one. as the relationship one, but the big, particularly with that fade out. Well, that fade out is you know it's it's hilarious. It's it's first of all the the song the first version is seven minutes and ten seconds long, which is one second longer, one second shorter, shorter, one second shorter than Hey Jude. And uh, but you know you listen to that you know fade out at the end and it's it's Hey Jude in disguise Hey Jude is just kind of yeah. hiding right under its skin. Yes, um, and you know it's a very famous bone of contention that that it was the Hey Jude session that George effectively absented himself when 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 Paul was saying no no I don't want you to play the little guitar parts and uh, save that for real love. <laughs> um and it's uh but it you know the, the, the writer um uh nicholas 
Schaeffner said that uh, the song is a towering simplicity, but the endlessly repetitive fade out somehow manages to be hypnotic instead of boring. And I'd agree with that. I'm quite, I'd be quite happy if it went on for another couple of yeah. minutes. Uh, yeah. I, I, lo- I love the simplicity. It's a, it's a great this, uh, piece. And uh, this, this, this appears on um, live in Japan. Yep. But at no point during the fade out does George say to the audience, "Just, just the boys, <laughs> just the girls, <laughs> just, just the girls, everybody, everybody over, there. everybody over there." You know, George doesn't do that. Um, I think he missed a trick. He did. There, but, you know, he needs to work uh, on that. Um, uh, this, this was a this was a hit single as well. So this was this was uh, this was originally George had this earmarked down as the, as the lead single, and then they went with uh, My, My Sweet, Sweet Lord. Lord. But, it was but on the B was, side of My Sweet Lord. Yeah, um, but in in uh, in the US and Canada, it was a double A side and um, got to number one in Canada. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's a, an interesting fact. Um, so that's isn't you, it a you pity? sound so not interested in that. Yeah, fact. It is interesting. I'm, I, <laughs> I I think I'm I'm aware that like many things, we we tend to be UK and US chart centric. You yeah. know, um, but maybe we there's there's an episode on the Beatles in Canada, isn't there? There is. There certainly is. There we certainly get, there certainly is. Get, Piers Hemmings and if yeah, he's the Canadian the Canadian uh, uh, expert, um, and uh, can I say check out the eleven minute version by Nina Simone? Oh yes, if yes, you, yes. If you uh, not not when you're feeling depressed in any way. <laughs> um, so we get on to side two, and side two track one opens. That, that this is a real, you know. Uh, everybody, everybody's Boyle, favorite song. Real George Martin, you know, let's kick yeah. the album wide open. Uh, and a song that, you know, everyone should know, which is uh, What Is Life? Uh, you can't not love What Is Life, can you? This is this is a fantastic, this is a kind of, uh, we talked about Badge before on the episode. This this seems to me in a direct line with Badge. Yes. This is one of one of those, uh, what, what Simon Lang, I got his name right, uh, <laughs> says it's, it's a kind of new type of pop rock song and it's a kind of soul motiny feel and you can't not imagine this song being played by the beatles you know this is this is really far away yeah yeah you're gonna tell me you can see this this dropping onto abbey road no i can't uh no i can't i can't um although there is that uh, on the cd 2001 cd there's the what is life there's that backing track which has this a Penny Lane piccolo trumpet all over it. Yes, which yes. It does sound terrible. I mean, that was a right decision to take it that It was out. the right decision. Yeah, it, it was the right decision. One, one of the things I really love about this, and it's really buried in the mix, is the string arrangement. Yes. I, I'm a sucker for a kind of fabulously punchy rhythmic string section. And this is one of John You're going to love you alone. Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, sh- I should really check that band out. Um, and um, um, that's the one thing I like about Yellow. That's not the one thing I like about Yellow. Um, but uh, for, from about three three minutes thirty, there is this great string section, and I think if 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 you know Danny is listening, I'm sure he is. Um, yes, yeah. If you haven't quite finished that remix, just turn that string section up, uh, fade the vocals out, uh, and, and uh, you know punch the strings up. Yeah, and it was a you know a top ten hit in the in the US when it came out as the the second proper full on uh, single, and the video went up on YouTube about two years ago. New video for the song for some reason, not sure why, but yeah, it's, it's slightly there. slightly odd, uh, slightly odd video. Um, yeah, it's just a girl dancing the, around. Isn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. the the sec the second single uh, released in America uh, with Apple Scruffs on the B side, and uh, that might be why it's listed as the third most popular 
George Harrison song by the listeners of AOL Radio. You want yeah. number one? Number one is My Sweet Lord. Uh, number number two, we should do this as a competition. Well, if people want to guess, should we, we've got nothing no. to give away. Really. Weirdly, weirdly, it's Blow Away. Yeah, you told me that fact, and I, I my first take was, you know, AOL Radio. That makes no sense. That's like yeah. Great Western Railway Airlines or something. I don't but, know. It just, it just doesn't seem to. Yeah, uh, but obviously, obviously, your favorite version is uh, the one by Weird Al Yankovic at George Fest in 2014. Good old Weird Al. He really move on, move on. Let's just move he, he on. He really, um, he really was trying to be utterly sincere when he when he performed that. It was great. Uh, no word against Weird Al. And seriously, weird, I, I'll do half an hour on Weird Al if you're not. Um, yeah, well, careful. I'm going to hit hit the edit button right now. <laughs> Um, side two, track two, and it's uh, a visit again from uh, Mr. Bob Dylan, and it's the song "If Not for You." And yeah. you know, we should remind ourselves of the timeline because this "All Things Must Pass" comes out at the end of November. But "If Not for You" would have already have been known at that point because it came out um, a couple of weeks earlier, at the start of October 1970, as the lead single from Dylan's New Morning album, Dylan's own version of it. Yes. So essentially, "All Things Must Pass" has a cover version on it. Yep. Um, and this is a this is a, a song that didn't Bob and George kind of record a they, version of this together. They in did. May. We talked. We we talked about that that May session, and they work on that. And that that version came out on the Dylan bootleg series, the very first uh, that volumes one oh, to yeah, three. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of okay. And I have to say the Dylan version on New Morning is okay. I like you know. New Morning. It's all right. Yeah, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like I like those kind of early 70s Dylan that, that crazy that, records. New is Morning it not, a bit, and, not a bit bandy for you? Well, you know, Dylan, uh, Dylan is Dylan, man. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I like Dylan. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Dylan fan, but... Okay. Uh, it's a kind of it's a kind of very laid back country romp, and and th- th- this is a I think a great uh, example of what the production on All Things Must Pass does, which it just completely transforms that song into this fabulously kind of glittering pop song. Mm. Uh, you know, the production just absolutely sparkles, and the the the, the guitars, and I think he he absolutely uh, you know knocks. Dylan off the stage with this, I think. It is a lovely I, I version. Feel yeah, I feel we've lost half our audience now. But, uh, <laughs> it, is, it is a lovely version, but there might be somebody else. You talk about the twinkling guitars there. Who might have been on guitar on this track? Well, yeah, this is this is interesting. Um, Alan White, people remember Alan White, uh, the drummer of Yes, and was also on Instant uh, Karma. And um, he gave an interview. I, I'm not saying how reliable or otherwise he is, but he has given an interview uh, uh, sort of of his recollections of the All Things Must Pass sessions. And he is very clear that John Lennon Mm. is playing on this track. Um, He just very casually says, you know, uh, Ringo turned up one day, you know, people used to pop in and out all the time. And I was playing with John. John was there too. And George and Ringo, the only person who wasn't there was Paul. And we're all playing. And I thought, you know, this, this is great, and I'm Ringo stands next to me playing the tambourine. And the interviewer goes, uh, is John on that album? And he goes, yeah, yeah, he didn't want his name on it. He was there just for fun, just playing. Do you remember what track it was? And he goes, was it the Dylan track? And I'm thinking, no, Alan, you were there. You know, <laughs> don't ask the interviewer. If not for you, yeah, yeah, I think, I think. That was the one with John was on, I think. I know Ringo was definitely playing tambourine on My Sweet Lord. So it's perhaps, you yes. know. 
not the most reliable that, testimony, that, yeah. Your Honor. Yeah, uh, that, 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 that could fall apart, uh, that, uh, that evidence. It's all um, circumstantial. Yeah, but I, you know, I, I don't think I don't think John would have played on this. I can't see it. Yeah, I'm trying to think of John's movements during 1970. I know we talked in the Plastic Band record, but you know he's, you know he he comes back to England purely to do his own record. He's not. Yeah. Uh, he's in America for a big chunk of the yeah. spring and summer, so it's yeah. not a it's not a given. Um, um, but uh, it, George sings it live uh, at, at the 1992 Bob Dylan. 30th anniversary concert Bob Fest Bob Fest yes, yes. He, he does two tracks he does Absolutely Sweet Marie and If Not For You and I don't think um, If Not For You has ever been officially released Absolutely Sweet Marie oh, made the album, the album. Uh, and he and Bob rehearsed it for Bangladesh in 1971 but didn't do it but the rehearsal is on on the 2005 reissue of the Bangladesh CD, but George has George has got form. Uh, he does, he does he's mean, done a couple of Dylan songs, hasn't oh, he? Oh, he's done a lot. He's done "If Not for You," uh, "I Don't Want to Do It," one version of which dates from around this time. "Abandoned Love," "Absolutely Sweet Marie," "Mama, You've Been on My Mind," and he takes a pass at "Every Grain of Sand." On the Rockline interview with, I can't read my notes there. Uh, uh, I think Jeff Lynn is in the room with Jeff Lynn, uh, which Jeff is Lynn one of your favorite interviews, and it's I, that, that that pass of "Every Grain of Sand" is. It's ropey, but it's very it's, charming. It's, it's ropey, but it's very charming. It's, it's, it, it, if people haven't heard that, it, it's one of the most revealing interviews I've ever heard by anybody. Yeah. Um, it's a kind of phone-in program, syndicated thing in the US, and he's promoting uh, uh, Cloud9, and people are ringing in, and George is really, really grumpy at the beginning, and then he relaxes into it. And Jeff is clearly in the room the whole time, just sitting mm. and then he kind of becomes very nice and very reflective uh, very, very, very sort of contemplative about himself and then he picks up a guitar and, and he and Jeff I think it's Let It Be Me they do a nice version of that Yeah, they really saw this it, is the first time ever in which he suddenly goes yeah my next thing is uh, my new group the Travelling Wilburys and the interviewer just completely misses it and, and uh, yeah it's the first mention I, of them yeah yeah um so the spectre, if it is a spectre of Bob, but the Bob fluence, so to speak, uh, goes into side two, track three, behind that locked door, which I is. See, I see what you did there. That was, I was, it, yeah, that was, was very smooth, well done. Yeah. Um, so uh, behind that locked door is a song about Dylan. Like, is, I wonder, is it intentionally back to back with "If Not for You"? I think. I mean, I, 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 I think it must be uh, intentionally back to back. I mean, this is really a song, uh, I suppose, about the friendship between. The two of them, and it, it's a sort of exhortation. Dylan was in, in his slightly reclusive period, I suppose, and um, uh, you know it's George writing about that, and and this this follows on. He supposedly wrote this um, after Dylan, seeing Dylan and meeting Dylan, hanging out with Dylan at the Isle of Wight festival. Mm. And uh, yeah, Dylan. You know, obviously had a respect for George. You know, he played the Harry Krishna mantra, apparently, did he? Yeah. Uh, so, pre-stage so, music. Yeah. So so uh, in December 2000, George gave an interview to Billboard and he said he actually began writing the song the night before Dylan played the Isle of Wight Festival. And at that same time, uh, George gave Dylan his vintage Gibson J200 acoustic guitar and, and Dylan kind of reciprocated by by having the Harry Krishna mantra, the, the single Mm. Um, played before he took the stage, and at that, you know, George and Patty were staying with 
uh, Dylan and his family during the week. There's some very funny photographs kicking around of George and Bob playing tennis. Have you they're seen very those? funny, yeah, they're great. Uh, you know, because they're like full denim on denim outfits <laughs> and they're just kind of running around with old wooden tennis rackets that uh, look like they come from the 30s. Um, but th- th- this is, again, very much in, in the style of the band. So he's writing about Dylan, he's writing about their friendship and he's recording this uh, in the style of 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 you know those those uh, songs he's heard at uh, um, so timeline wise there wasn't was there wasn't really an opportunity for this to be presented to the Beatles no there wouldn't have been no no, no I mean this this, this 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 I think you know if you look uh, you know unless George kind of hummed it to <laughs> John and Ringo in the audience at the Isle of Wight I think this was this this was really far wheel, gone. you know wheeled it out in in, in january um, i do like um this quote from patty boyd um, <laughs> she says uh bob dylan was an odd person when we went to see him in woodstock it was absolute agony he just wouldn't talk he would not talk he certainly had no social graces whatsoever i don't know whether it was because he was shy of george or what the story was but it was agonizingly difficult and his wife wasn't much help because she had babies to look after uh, <laughs> I like it's, how annoyed yeah. that is. This is like, you know, babies. I went are and just, did your thing and I didn't have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, you know, the... your babies got in the way. <laughs> um, um, can we mention, can we mention the pedal steel on this track? Oh yes. Who's that? So this is, this is Pete Drake. Mm. Um, and this is just absolutely, I think this is just gorgeous uh, uh, track and, and the guitar work is fantastic. So Drake is a, a kind of session player, producer, you know, you may know him from such hits as uh, <laughs> Lynn Anderson's uh, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. That, that's a big hit now, I imagine. Big hit, yeah. Tammy Wynette, Stand By Your Man, and Lay Lady Lay. Um, so he, he is brought over specifically to play on these yeah. sessions. And uh, the, supposedly the story is, you know, Ringo picks him up at the airport. I, I find that hard to believe that... You know, Ringo standing there at the airport with a little <laughs> sign saying Pete Drake um, and then drives on. But supposedly Pete Drake sees all these country and Western uh, cassettes or eight tracks or something lying around the car. And that leads one thing leads to another. And Ringo's whisked off to Nashville to record uh, Buku of Blues. You, you know, you mentioned Lay Lady Lay there. And that really is kind of something that, that is a track that kind of you can feel leads directly into the all things must pass vibe. Isn't it? it is. It is. Um, and, and what. One other thing people might want to go and look for on YouTube. We mentioned um, Peter Frampton. There's oh, yeah. an audio clip on YouTube against a photograph where um, uh, Pete Drake had a hit in 1964 with a song called Forever that featured a thing that he had invented called a talk box. Oh, yes. Ah, where yes. He, put, he put a little tube in his mouth, played the little steel guitar, and there is literally the moment that he is demonstrating this to Peter Frampton going, Hey Pete, you might be interested in this. <laughs> and then of course this is Peter Frampton's entire career is based on, on his use of this. Uh, you can't say uh, that. On, we'll never get Peter Frampton we'll on the show Peter, I think he's quite, he's quite honest about this, but it's, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating to hear that, that kind of birth of a birth of a, a moment, you know? Mm. Um, so side two track four is, let it down and if you're counting the Beatle reject songs this is track number two because this was explicitly offered and played to the Beatles um well after he wrote it in 1968 he played it for them in January 69 and they said uh no um again it's hard to imagine it in the form that it's in on all things must pass being a Beatles song 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there is a kind of uh, a demo version which is more beatly, I suppose. But this is one of those songs that Phil gets his hands on, and um, you know, you'll notice there's one of these tracks on each side. You know, one of these big bombastic, mm. and it does play. It's you know, it's not it plays with kind of light and shade. You know, George is inventing the whole Pixies grunge Nirvana thing. You know, loud That's quiet. A stretch. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, but this is this is another one of those sort of dense mix uh, of, of um, and it's it's a it's a kind of odd song lyrically. Mm. Um, you know, we've got all the kind of odes to Bob Dylan and the sort of spiritual things, and this is this is what one of his biographers says. This is a pretty erotic love song, perhaps to a woman. Perhaps, perhaps not, to a woman. Perhaps to a woman who isn't Patty Boyd. Oh, um, I see. Uh, you know, that's that's a thing, and it, it's also it's one of the very few songs that George does not cover in his "I Me Mine" book. Hmm. So you kind of think, well, is there is reading too much into it that you know he? Uh, yeah, was that, a bit he, regret, that he's bit regretful to, of that. You know, that he's decided to park it. Well, we we know that uh, you know. In January 1969, around the time he walked out of the Beatles, he was seeing somebody else who wasn't Patty Boyd. Isn't that what we know at the time? Yes. Yes, well, so it was just the time. It was just, we're, we're not passing but, judgment on that, except we are really. But, uh, but looking at the timeline, I mean, you know, uh, 1970 for Patty Boyd is a pretty intense year because in March 1970, that's when George actually moves into his Friar Park mansion yes. that we, we kind of associate with him so much yes and uh it is funny how much we know about the beatles houses between george's friar park and john's ascot uh, mansion house you know yeah that, uh, and these I, houses I, play an important part in their they image do. And, and and i think i think in march 1970 uh you know friar park was a bit of a tip really you know it was yeah. it was it needed a lot of work done they were living in a little uh cottage in the in the in the grounds at one point uh this, this supposedly is the location for the last time all four beatles were together that patty boyd had a birthday party on uh, the yes. 17th of march and chris o'dell in her book says oh you know john paul ringo were all there and this is 1970 that, isn't it yeah and if yeah, that's, and that's right, not really what like well the, the, mm. it's about a week or so before paul makes his kind of Announcement. announcement and this is this idea that if if you know i think i think we've on previous episodes in this series have come to the conclusion or at least i've come to the conclusion that the beatles kind of broke up by accident that it mm. just kind of stumbled this this um uh, stumbled into this I mean, is it conceivable that they all just rocked up at george's new house to have a look at the house and um maybe you, you know, know she's, I mean, she's she's very, very clear think it yeah, and then suddenly, as I say, you know, Paul puts out that press statement. It's a little bit, you know, unclear what's happening. Yeah. Anyway, it would be nice to think that that was the last time they were uh, all together. But you know, 1970 for you know, speaking about Patty Boyd, that you know, we've mentioned already the Layla album. But this is the year where Clapton starts, you know, plighting his troth, plighting his troth, playing those mind games, playing those mind games forever. Yeah. Yeah. So this is sort of late 1970. Eric, uh, I think just comes right out and says, you know, um, I'm dating your sister, but, uh, uh, (laughs) actually it's, you're the one that I want. Um, 
and uh, uh, <laughs> like yeah, uh, I like the song. And yeah. <laughs> um, then then she rejects him, and he goes off and you know writes Layla and has some heroin, and uh, it all becomes very sordid. Yeah, yeah. Let's um, move on. <laughs> okay, I was just going to say, and and to complete the to complete the thing, uh, uh, Paula Boyd uh, goes off and has an affair with Bobby Whitlock from oh, Clapton's right. band. It was different time doesn't she have another sister who marries mick fleetwood yes twice she yeah. married him twice so. yeah to marry him once is understandable twice well, though, to marry really. twice just uh yeah, yeah. inexcusable <laughs> i'll be doing that um side two track five the last song on the side i love this song run of the mill you and olivia this is olivia's favorite song i i just adore this song i think it's i just think it's so it's just it's just got it all it's got the spiritual stuff it's got a good tune it's got a good lyric it is this is a beatle quality song and it's yeah, about, I mean, Paul, and it's about songs. that's probably the wrong thing to say but this is a song that could have slotted in and to it's, abbey it, road or anywhere and it's about paul so you say but i mean i i think you're seeing shadows on the wall steve not everything can be about paul i think it's pretty pretty i think i think you if you go back and i'm sure you listen all the time to our past episodes i think we I did do. include this all, in the episode where it was the beatles writing songs, songs about, about the beatles about so, the beatles so he says tomorrow when you rise another day for you to realize me or send me down again as the days stand up on end you've got me wondering how i lost your friendship but i see it in your eyes Though I'm beside you, I can't carry the blame for you. Yeah, maybe. It's got Paul written all through it. Like a but stick he's never of explicitly like, said that, has he? Like a stick of Blackpool rock. <laughs> um, and again, I can't believe you like this song because it's a very band-influenced song as well. Maybe I've got the band all wrong. Maybe I, no, I think, I think you're going to have again. to. Yeah, um, it's working. It's working. <laughs> imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So we're halfway through the, uh, the, the double album part. We can do this team. We, we, we can, can do this. <laughs> we can do it. We can do this. We've got another <laughs> hour to go. Um, side three, track one, another fantastic song. Uh, Beware of darkness. This, 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 you know, it varies from day to day, but week to week. But this might be my favorite song on the album. I just love this song. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the demo, which was originally on the bootleg, which eventually came out on the 2001 uh, reissue. Yeah. That demo is lovely where he kind of says, you know, this is a new song. You know, it's hot off the skillet. 
Yes. And um, it famously has the Beware of Abco Beware of lyric. Abco. And you think, yeah, that was 27th of May, uh, 1970, and he's singing Beware of Abco. Yeah, that's you know? like a month after, you know, Paul has his, throws his toys out of the pram because of uh, Abco and George is I, saying, yeah, Abco. <laughs> I, well, I always, I always assumed that was a kind of sarky swipe at Paul. You oh, know? you reckon? There you yeah. go again. There you go. <laughs> it's all about Paul. So the lineup on this is essentially, again, Derek and the Dominoes, but this time with uh, Ringo and George and... Uh, Gary Wright. And uh, Leon Russell does a cover, doesn't he? Which I haven't heard. Uh, you're very fortunate. Leon Russell does a terrible cover on his uh, debut album from around the same time. But uh, George obviously forgave him that because they do a duet at the concert for Bangladesh. On this song. On this song. And um, Marianne Faithful right. does a version. Came out in 1984, but she recorded it in 1971. So she was an early adopter. Interesting. And again, it's another song that really shines at the concert for George. It is. It is. Um, yeah, you should have been there. <laughs> Were you there? Never mind. Side uh, three, no, move, track move two, is Apple Scruffs. And this is another song I like. And I think for the first time on All Things Must Pass, I feel Beetledom intrudes. Beetledom appears. This is a very, okay. it's a song that's about, you know, the Apple Scruffs used to hang around outside, the fans used to hang around outside the Apple yep. offices. But it also is very sort of light and fluffy. It has a Beatles touch to it. I can imagine this kind of slotting in between, you know, Polythene Pam and me, Mr. Mustard or something like that. You know, it's, it's got, yeah, it's got yeah, those yeah. kind of vibes to it. You think it might be, might be a good uh, good Beatles B-side in the vein of Old Brown Shoe yeah, or something? Yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's, 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 it's got a lightness and a, I guess it's not going down the deep spiritual personal route like so many of the other songs. No, uh, I mean, one of the things you would say about this album is that it, it covers a lot of ground mm. in terms of lyrically. So although he's, you know, I've said he's trying to put a lot of distance between himself and the Beatles in terms of the, the, the sound, in terms of the arrangements and writing with Bob Dylan and, and that type of thing. Nevertheless, the Beatles kind of hang over this album because a lot of the songs are about the Beatles. Yeah. It's about that that. Uh, kind of dichotomy between you know I'm I'm a Beatle I'll always be a Beatle but I you know I, as you say George never really liked being in the Beatles he's not a fan of the Beatles um, this is about the Beatles fans uh, there's a spiritual side there's a kind of erotic love songs in there it it, it covers a lot of ground but I, this is a charming song it is charming yeah. um, and what I would say uh, coming from someone like George who is so notoriously um, sort of you know doesn't like the the what comes with being a beetle yeah. the track this is a very affectionate yes uh nod to the fans and it's not something you would necessarily um expect from george and that makes me think it's a very sincere uh, uh song yeah he's not he's not laughing at them and it's it's just him no. live on an acoustic guitar isn't it with harmonica and yeah that really sits well against in contrast to the rest of the record you know it's very very it, nice it, it is there's some some very interesting outtakes where you he's playing the harmonica in a side of bob dylan style harmonica holder oh, yeah. and every time every time he moves his head his beard catches in the <laughs> harmonica holder. this is why bob dylan doesn't have a beard that's very true no sorry, not, a, not a big bushy uh george harrison 1970 and, beard and, and it can was, i uh, can i get, give you my my fun fact about on, this then, fun fact it was a double A side in Australia with What Is Life and it topped the Go Set National Top 60 in May 1971. So 
technically, it was a number one hit in Australia. Technically, being the key word in that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Apple Scruffs, yeah, great little song. And then side three, track three is the Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp. And I'm going to throw a little hand grenade in here and say, I think this is kind of the first clunker on the album. I'm not a huge fan of this song. I'm sorry. Really? Yeah. Why? I don't know. I just think it's, I don't know, it just just doesn't uh, rattle my cage, I guess. Well, he, I mean, George does say it's a kind of piece of personal indulgence. Yeah. Um, It was originally a song called Everybody Nobody, which was about cars and the newly introduced highway code. Oh, I'm sorry we didn't get that. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, you're saying this is a clunker, but, you know, it could have been worse. It could have been worse. Um, But this is this is written as a tribute to Frank Crisp, who was the lawyer that uh, the original owner of Friar Park. Yes. But um, it's it's a sort of guided tour you know through the hall and down the stairs it's it's a little guided tour of the uh of the estate i i think this is charming i can't believe you you don't uh, like this sorry well harrison has described um sir frank crisp as a cross between lewis carroll and walt disney and certainly he seems to have been to put it mildly an eccentric and many of the you know for the time, even though he was pre-Pythonesque, he sort of had a Pythonesque view of things that really chimed with George when he saw the things that he'd left behind in the house from fifty yeah. plus odd years earlier. Yes, so, the whole the whole house is full of sort of little jokes. Yeah. Um, so the the you know and and again we talked about at the beginning about George's love of dreadful puns and things, and I think it chimes very much with what this chap Frank Crisp was doing. So there's a. Uh, in the architecture, and you see it, I think it's on the inside of 33 and a third. There's a little carving, a little relief of a monk mm-hmm. uh, holding a frying pan with a hole in it. Yeah. And the caption is, Two Holy Friars. There you go, you see. Um, so it's that kind of dreadful, but yeah, but if, but but Frank Chris spent thousands of pounds to put that in, in, in the architecture of the building. Um, and another inscription inspired Ding Dong, but we might talk about that another day. Yes, a whole episode on Yes, a whole uh, episode on Ding Dong. On Ding Dong. Uh, um, yeah, so, you know, again, this, this, uh, this, the, the Beatles houses inspiring or informing what they're, what they're about. Yeah. Um, side three, track four is Awaiting on You All. Um, and we've talked a lot about digs at Paul that pop up on the album. You think this is, there's, there's John and Yoko digs here. This, this, until I started uh, sort of reading some background on this and doing some research, because, hey, we do research, um, doesn't seem <laughs> like ever we do. Uh, <laughs> th- th- they said, yeah, he's the first line is a dig at John and Yoko. You don't need a love-in. You don't need a bedpan. You don't need a horoscope or a microscope to see the mess that you're in. And Too many people never... preaching practices. Exactly. <laughs> it had never occurred to me before, but it actually does sound like a bit of a dig at the bed-in campaign and, uh, you know, all of that. Um, well, I don't and... think George would have been... Um immune to laughing at the bed-ins i don't know do we know no i I think he would have uh maybe he was a man of peace and he would have appreciated the message of peace but he must have found the bed-ins or do we know what he had did he ever say anything explicitly about what he i I don't recall off the top of my head i can't think of any time he he specifically commented on that but i mean you know they john uh, you know was principled and cut but at the same time 
you know, he was prone to jumping on a bandwagon mm-hmm. or, you know, whether that was part of the people or the sort of, uh, sort of new left and, and, and that type of thing. But, uh, I, I, you know, they, they, both guy, men might have been um, principled and, and, you know, all you need is love and et cetera, et cetera. But they approached it, I think, in very different ways. And, uh, yeah, I think I, the more I think about it, the more I look at that, I think, yeah, that's a bit of a dig at, uh, a bit of a dig at John. Yeah, uh, and it has a big spectre sound. It's, another, it's the one on that side that's got the big spectre sound, I guess. It is. And I mean, again, you notice there's one of these on every side. Yeah. So this is this has got maybe five overdubbed slide solos. Um but those were solos that George did after Phil Spector had left. So oh. George is kind of buying into the the the, the style of, of the production. But this is I love this song. No, it, is, I, it, it is a good song. song. It is great. Okay. And um, we we talked about in Plastic Underband about EMI censoring the lyrics yes. on the lyric sheet. So they did the same here. What did they censor? And, and I remember hearing the song when I first bought the album and looking at the lyrics and thinking, what, what is that? That doesn't, he sings the line, um, uh, the Pope owns 51% of General Motors and the stock exchange is the only thing he's qualified to quote us. <laughs> and EMI decided that little bit of a swipe, uh, they, would, uh, they, would, they would take that out. It's in the handwritten text in mm. I, Me, Mine. That's uh, George, George, George has form taking a swipe at the Catholic Church. Uh, has he? What's it? What else has he done? Well, you've got if you if you look at the inside sleeve of uh, Living in the Material World, yeah. he it's 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 a kind of parody of the Last Supper, and and George is in the middle with yes. a giant bishop's hat on and um, brain brainwashed. Oh yeah, uh, contains the song P two Vatican Blues yes. last Saturday night, which takes a swipe at the Vatican Bank and uh, shady Italian Masonic lodges and. Uh, Cardinal Machinkus, is that the Marchinkus, the banker, Vatican banker? (laughs) So, yeah, he didn't have much truck with uh, organized religion. Fair enough. And in in, in, uh, incongruous songs in unusual places, I I once heard this song playing quite loudly in one of those tiger stores, you know, those stores that sort of sell random plastic tat. I was wandering around one day and they decided to play Waiting on You All, which was nice. That's very nice. Um, Last track on side three, side three, track five, and we've gotten really to the the top of the mountain because it's the title track, All Things Must Pass. And, you know, we all know and love All Things Must Pass, and it's worth reminding ourselves. So when the album hit the shelves, George was 27 years of age. That's crazy. It That's is a crazy. crazy, crazy thing. <laughs> I mean, it's an incredibly uh, mature lyric um, for somebody at 27, well, for someone at any age. But, um, you know, and again, I, I've been quoting Simon Lang, and he basically is saying this is the lyric that approaches Dylan's standard. Uh, you know, yeah, um, it's kind and, of faultless. And if if we're playing, you know, uh, the how many songs were rejected by the Beatles? We're up to three. This is a third song that the Beatles were presented with at the start of '69. Yeah, and I've, I've I've written down here. It is a hanging offence that the Beatles rejected this song. I would totally agree with you. You know, and you know, again, it's something we've talked about before about you know. The, the, the get back let it be forum you know if if songs like this had gotten through in a sort of naturalistic way um you know the, they would sound fantastic we have clips of bootlegs of the beatles harmonizing yep. on the the chorus of all things must pass and it's so tantalizingly close to you know it wouldn't have taken much to, to shape that, it it's so that, close that, that, 
that is what's frustrating because George George introduces this song on the second of January, so day right one, top, yeah. And they work on it for four days intermittently. They work on it for four days, and you can hear George saying, "You know, I want it to feel like the band." And he Lennon moves from guitar to the kind of Laurie organ, yeah, which is that kind of Garth Hudson feel. And then at one point, they discuss the idea of George maybe just doing this as a solo Beatles track. Um, and you think, well, maybe that was just Lennon was keen. You know, you do that as a solo track, and I don't have to play on it. That, that's um, you know, Lennon was com- always complaining about George's songs being too complicated, and uh, mm. you know, I and he clearly just. But this is the day one, and they work on it for four days, um, and they work on it again back in Apple Studios at the end of the month, and uh, yeah, reject it again. It is a pity. It is a pity. And who knows what sort of Frankenstein uh, construction they might put together of a Beatles All Things Must Pass in the 2021 box set. Uh, time will tell. Paul sings this at the concert for George, which is yes. a, a nice choice. Again, what must he have been thinking? You know, was he thinking, oh, this could have been, this is good, this, this, you know, we could have put this on Abbey Road. <laughs> he was thinking, all these people here to see me. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I'm glad you said that <laughs> and not me. What what I would say is there was no sense at that concert. If you look at the DVD or if you're one yeah. of those people that happened to be there on the night, if, if you know anybody was yeah. there, there was no sense on, on the night that Paul was anything other than uh, sort of humble yeah. and... Uh, uh, deferential and respectful, I have to say. Um, Paul, yeah, Paul, Paul is a real team player on that night, and he, yes, he, he, and and why shouldn't he be? And he judges it perfectly. And why shouldn't he have the way he 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 comes in? I think I've said it before. It's only that bit right at the end where he says, "Hey, doesn't Danny look like George?" Where he I kind just, of he can't help himself. He's been Maca comes out. He's been bottling that up, and then it just all comes out but his version is lovely and um uh yeah you know you can't it's all things must pass shut up it's just a great song yeah it is and again again it's the band it's 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 that influence and george is again very specific he says i was trying to write something like i was trying to be robbie robertson i was trying to write like the band so again it's 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 all pervasive uh that influence and it's uh, maybe we should uh, mention the elephant in the room right now but it's been the curtain raiser of uh, a 2021 All Things Must Pass renovation. Yes. Do you want to talk about the 2020 remix of All Things Must Pass that's landed in our laps recently? No. You don't like it. I don't care for it. Okay. I, I just... But it's not I, going I, to I, erase your, you know, Phil Spector version. So, you know... No, but I, I just... I just... Uh, it just doesn't sound right, and I, 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 maybe it's because this album, you know, in the same way that a lot of people didn't like the Pepper uh, uh, re- remix, yeah. simply because they were so familiar with it. I am so familiar with this album, yeah. um, and I just adore this album, and and it just jars slightly, and it just strikes me uh, as again that that notion that they just turned everything up a bit mm. and boosted the treble um, <laughs> and you can hear everything separated out and it just doesn't quite sound right. Whereas Smiley I like, face EQ, they call it, you know? Yeah, I, I prefer that kind of 
slightly more subdued, slightly understated, everything kind of just in the mix. And, uh, you know, I, I'm maybe talk about this a little bit later in the fourth or fifth hour of this yes. episode. Um, I, I, uh, I, I do like it. I think it's nice. My, my own theory is that these remixes are happening because we're living in an age of the new mono, that this is designed for smart speakers in kitchens. Yes. That's, that's kind of what they're designed for. And, you know, when the remix came out there recently, um, because of where I was at, I only had my phone. So I'm like, I'm going to play this on my phone through my phone yeah. speakers. And, uh, you know, you could hear the differences, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different era. But we, we might, we'll come back a little bit later on and talk about um, what might be coming down the pipes for uh, an All Things Must Pass reissue. Yeah. Let's leave side three behind and go on to side four, track one. And... Uh, I'm going to say two things. The side four track one is I Dig Love. Yep. I think side four is perhaps the weakest of the four sides. Okay. And I Dig Love is probably my least favorite song on the album. I agree. I, 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 oh, good. I, 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 we've, should we mark a note somewhere in our diaries? <laughs> it's finally that we've agreed happened. On finally happened. We can just quit the podcast <laughs> right now. Um, yeah, it's a kind of just, throwaway apparently written more or less in the studio and and it's it's odd that given the sort of outtakes and the other songs that were available yeah. and the things that were actually recorded but didn't make it this 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 there doesn't seem to be much to it and again this is a song that um uh, uh, he he doesn't he doesn't uh refer to in i mean mine so again well, the lyrics are kind of slight in a way you know and he'd yeah love in i love the morning, i love dig. dig dig love in the evening and all that kind of stuff yeah I mean, I, it, it, it always sounds to me you know i think it sounds different to the rest of the album in a different way chapel scruffs uh, that, that sort of you know that, that kind of riff it always feels to me like yeah. creeping around music i'm creeping around it is it's a funny it is a kind of odd and particularly to open the final uh side yeah it, it's, it's and i guess you know uh, uh, we talk about this notion of gateways and impressions and an impression into side four it's like oh are we are we running on fumes now are we you know yeah so but I, but I, I, you know, I, I, I agree with you that I this is the weakest song on the album. But I have to say, there's two of my favorite songs are on side four. So, well, okay, let let let's press on then, because side four, track two, is another song that uh, we don't think it was rejected by the Beatles, but it could possibly have been done by the Beatles because it's the art of dying, and that was another song that was written a considerable amount of time earlier. Yes. Uh, again, possibly I, 66, uh, possibly 66. Yeah. So you think, well, this this might have been kicking around for inclusion on Revolver. So if you can imagine uh, a, a, a reworking of Revolver that included Art of Dying and Isn't It a Pity, yeah. you know, um, but um, yeah, because there was an, an interview in 1969 in October um, and George refers to the song saying, I've been working on a song about reincarnation since 1966. So at least the the sort of song the 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 germination of the song dates back to 1966 and uh, again you've got that whole Tibetan book of the dead that Timothy Leary book yes. um, the, there's some of the, the the lyrics seem to refer to that and that would tie in with tomorrow never knows John and George were you know uh, true yeah on, on the LSD um, <laughs> at at that time so it, it would tie in with that and supposedly the original line is and nothing Mr. Epstein can do will keep me here with you. Mm. 
instead of Sister Mary. Hmm. Interesting. Um, he missed the opportunity to say Mother, Mother Mary, Mary. Yeah. and uh, then another swipe at uh, Paul. <laughs> Paul. I, I, I think this is a fantastic uh, production. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think this is maybe Phil Spector's best service of a song on the album. Fair enough. So you it's like the, the I love this song. It's the, it's, the, it's the Phil Collins track as well. Oh, yeah. Now, this is, we're not going to go that full story again, but obviously he's not no. on this version. Yeah. Um, we think. We think, yeah. Uh, so side four, track three is Isn't It a Pity? But sure, we've already had that. We don't need another one. That's we don't need another one. I, I, I quite like this. I think this is a kind of nice little understated version. And again, my, my, my theory is that there are two versions because the song bears two meanings. And the first one, which is put up, front on the album is about the demise of the Beatles and this is this is a, a much more kind of understated and this this is a song for Patty um, I think. and then that leaves us to the final track on the album side four track four hear me Lord and this is the fourth song that we know definitely was rejected by the Beatles yes this turns up on the uh, in the get back sessions I love this song yeah it's it's um, it's quite something it is. To, it to is. think that this is, you know, we, we know that George has had a spiritual awakening in the Beatles and the whole Within Without You kind of vibe that he, he brings. Um, but, you know, it's it's still pretty striking where one it, Beatle is singing, uh, you know, I don't believe in God and Buddha and all the rest. And then yeah. another Beatle is singing, you know, hear me, Lord. It's, it's help me. Yeah, this is this is this is it's this utterly is a- sincere. It's utterly sincere. Uh, this is a plea to God for forgiveness, for, you know, help me cope, help me find direction, you know, help me. Being a good Presbyterian, my mother will be very pleased. I recognize <laughs> this from Psalm 27, which is, hear me, Lord, when I call to That's you. where I've heard it before. That's where you've heard it before. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's a very kind of n- naked uh, plea. And you think this is as shocking as anything John is doing on plastic on a band um i cannot see this song ever being played by the beatles because of the, no. the content because of the subject matter in the same way that they're saying uh, cold turkey we're not doing that yeah uh there i i just can't see uh this this being done and he he played it at um his first concert bangladesh uh in the afternoon concert but it it was dropped for the evening set yeah you do kind of you know uh, maybe not take for granted but you're you, you kind of get a blind spot about you know how explicit some of this spiritualism is you know that that song came on the radio the other day all those years ago you know and it's got that line yeah. of it you know talk about god he's the reason that we exist i think that's a very yeah, explicit line to put into a, a pop song that you kind of think, oh, that's just George being George. But you see, I think I think that that's that starts with uh, arguably "My Sweet Lord," where yeah. where suddenly it's a pop song, and suddenly, but you're you're kind of singing Hallelujah, and then suddenly, without realizing it, you're not singing Hallelujah anymore. You're singing Harry Krishna. Yeah, um, you know, you you've you've heard his version of "It Don't Come Easy." Uh, whose version? George's version. George's version. No, so, not. so, so he he does a guide vocal. Yeah, and he has backing singers, and in the middle of the song, they sing Harry Krishna. Right. And Ringo, they, he just then presented it to Ringo, and Ringo said, "I'm not having that," and just mixed the backing vocals right down. But if you <laughs> listen to Ringo's version, you can hear very faintly Harry Krishna. Well, so he was just slipping this kind of thing into. But this is different. This is a really explicit. Um, very personal, and it's one of those things that oh, you're almost embarrassed to be kind of 
a witness to that kind of naked bearing of the soul, yeah. you know? Um, but again, really catchy little kind of hooks in there as well. Um, I, I really like this song and it's the last song. This is the song that he signs off on. Yeah. And it's, 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 yeah, we talked at the, the start of the album. Well, it's not the album. It's somebody signs off on Stephen. There's another two sides of music. To well, have, yeah, but they're the bonus <laughs> fun, they're the fun tracks. Um, but no, but seriously, we, like we talk about how the album opens in a very, you know, subtle and slinky way. Yeah. And it sort of ends, it, it, it doesn't really end with one of those sort of bye-bye songs that albums no. tend to end with. It's, it's ending in a very brash way. Yeah, and it's not a song where there's a resolution, so it's not as if there's a kind of it. It's it leaves it in a sort of open-ended mm. question. You know, we've been on this journey across four sides of vinyl, and we're still leaving it with this. You know, help me find a way. You know, hear me, Lord. What do I do? Where do I go? It, it, it's it's a very very brave thing, I would say. Yeah. It's as, in its own way, I think, as brave and as stark yes. as. Plastic on band. And, uh, you know, I guess, you know, at that time, people were looking for answers from their rock stars. And George was kind of saying the whole notion of prayer is one of putting yourself at the mercy of, you know, uh, a God or the God or whatever it is that you, you believe. It's, and so he's not even giving an answer. He's just saying, no, no, and it, 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 it is striking that around that period. So you had, you know, Clapton has presence of the Lord. Um, Bobby Whitlock has a song on his first solo album, which again, I really recommend people if you like all yep. things must pass and Layla is his solo albums are very good. He has thought, you know, another day without Jesus. So suddenly religion is a, is, is an acceptable, yeah, uh, almost compulsory. Everybody has to have it's a, birds, a religious Jesus song. Jesus is just all right. In that yeah, too, yeah, yeah. So suddenly this becomes a thing around this time, you know. And that feeds us into Mr. Isn't it, the following year's Jesus Christ Superstar uh, time. Um, you know, you, you mentioned something there about the Hallelujah Hari Krishna issue. I'm going to go on a, down a sidetrack for a sec. There was somebody posted okay. a thing. Uh, RTE, the Irish National Broadcaster, has a very good archive website. And they had an interview with a woman from 1969 talking about... Um, Ireland's first transcendental meditation center and trying to explain to people what meditation was and what mantras were and what chanting was. And it's quite, it's quite sweet and interesting, but you know, for, for a country that was doing back to back rosaries, I, I thought people kind of know what mantras are really. Yes. We know, we know what the chanting don't, don't, is. Don't, yeah. don't you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting how George manages to, to mix those things. Um, so, well, we've done it. We've done the six sides of all things must pass, but of course, once the album's recorded, it has to get a sleeve. It has to be delivered to the shops. And so, so much more to talk about. There's so much. Where are we getting started, folks? Um, <laughs> but, you know, it comes back to this notion of, you know, you're experiencing the album through what it looks like, how it appears. And, you know, All Things Must Pass is, not only is it a triple album, but it's a triple album with lyric printed sleeves and a poster. It's in a very hard form box and it has that picture on the front. Yeah. So the, 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 it, it, the fact of it being in a box is, is kind of significant. You know, Let It Be has come out in a very limited run in a box, but not like this. This is, this is boxed with kind of gold embossed lettering on the spine. This is like classical mm. music. This is like a, like a, a sort of classical music um, collection. So, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very striking from that point of view, but the, but the cover um, 
You know, again, I think it kind of divides opinion. It's a kind of very downbeat, understated, black and white, slightly sepia toned. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of look at it, it's not a very striking photograph, but then you've got the whole symbolism of George sitting there and, and four reclining gnomes yes. uh, surrounding him. So, I mean, the way you look at it is he's, he's uh, four garden gnomes in a state of repose or possibly exhaustion and George is towering over them. So, you know, it, it's, it's all that symbolism uh, is there. Well, the photographer who took it, Barry Feinstein, he's, he's adamant or he's pretty clear that these are the Beatles, that these, these gnomes are Beatle representatives. <laughs> yes. I mean, he, he talks about it. He has a, a, a book. He died some years ago, but there's a book of his, his photographs came out quite recently um, called Be Here Now. And he, he says, you know, this was, I hung around Briar Park for a while. Last day, took 20 minutes, got a chair, umbrella. That was it. But he said, when I saw the gnomes, I picked them because it looked like a good picture. And I thought symbolically that that's what it could be. Did I mention it to George? I don't remember. But that was in my head. What else could it be? Um, Like, I know what you mean when you say, you know, it's a bit of a dour image, but it's one of those things that, you know, transcends what it is because it's the cover of all things must pass, you know? Yeah. It's it's almost like the name, the Beatles themselves. You've kind of forget the pun. It's just the Beatles, you know, it's just, it's, it's become what it is. It's become what it is. And it, it, and it it kind of sums up George perfectly, you know, as he kind of in gardener mode with his hat and his Wellington boots and, and, uh, you know, um, the the rest of the design, apart from Barry Feinstein doing the photographs is uh, a guy called Tom Wilkes. And he's, He's designing a lot of albums around that time. He does like the Delaney and Bonnie album covers. Interestingly, he also did Eric Clapton's debut album cover, which I think, yeah, I think has a similarity to All Things Must Pass because it's kind of Eric Clapton sitting nonchalantly in a chair, kind of not really making the effort, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, you could think, is could All Things Must Pass be a bit of a a, a Mickey take? I, probably not. I'm probably it could, images, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, 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 it hadn't occurred to me, but I didn't, uh, I, I mean, I have that album. I've had that album for years and You've never I, made I've the never, connection. I've never made the connection, but I think it might be, I can, but I, I, I've never understood the album cover because Eric's it's just Clapton. Cover. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of Clapton sitting in a chair. There's a couple of rolls of carpet. There's a couple of apples lying around that you can see in the background. There's two legs of a chair. It just seems to me to be a badly cropped, uh, photograph yeah. uh, uh, so i don't know but it, it could be um Isn't could be um the, but george george very very fond of the gnomes the gnomes pop up again yes. in 33 and a third there are gnomes in the video of ding dong and again um, it's the house it's friar park's garden it's it's, it's, it's friar park yeah and, uh, on that um uh web webinar that olivia did she said it was only the second batch of gnomes ever imported into the uk Really? I don't know. I, I don't know who told her that. But apparently, <laughs> um, Feinstein says, you know, the gnomes were originally part of Fire Park and then they were removed. And when Harrison bought the house, somebody got in touch with them and said, hey, I have gnomes from your garden. So fair enough. Um, but the form factor is striking, as you say. It's in this hard box. It's got gold lettering. I don't think it's ever really not been in a box. You know, I can't recall any budget no, sleeved version no, uh, popping out. No. I'm not aware. I mean, maybe in some other jurisdiction, perhaps people could let us know. But I think it's there's never been a music for pleasure uh, yeah. budget. It's always uh, been version been, of this. There has been eight tracks and all the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, and what's interesting is the cost of it when it came out. It was twelve dollars. It was the list price in America. Five pounds in the UK. 
Uh, and if you stick those things into inflation calculators, that's eighty dollars in today's money and seventy-five pounds to eighty pounds in today's money as well. And if you go to your online retailer to buy a triple vinyl, all things must pass today, it'll cost you seventy-five to eighty pounds. Yeah. So, but but, but that's that's not to think seventy-five pounds and it got to number one. Yeah. You know, it's sold by the juggernaut load. Yeah. Um, at that price. Yeah, it certainly did. It went to number one in the US. Uh, it was there for seven weeks from January 71. And in the UK, it was number one for eight weeks um, from February 1971. Uh, new Morning had been number one, actually. Uh, Dylan's New Morning had been number one just before it. And My Sweet Lord was number one in the US um, from December the 26th for four weeks. The number ones either side of it, just for curiosity value, were Tears yeah. of a Clan by Smoking and the Miracles. And uh, it was replaced. It was knocked off the number one spot by Knock Three Times by Dawn. Classic. Classic. And in the UK, the single actually didn't come out until January 71. And it was number one for five weeks from the end of January 71. It knocked Grandad off the top spot. And Baby Jump was the track that knocked it off the number one spot. I, I Somebody told me once, and I don't know if this is true, that it was the first album to be number one in the UK and America at the same time as the lead single off the album was number one in the UK. That is possibly true, because... Uh, but then somebody, somebody else told me Rod Stewart possibly had that. Hmm. But I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to... Maybe, the, maybe, somebody, somebody maybe out there the viewers can, can tell us. The viewers can tell um, us. And the album obviously has a huge uh, afterlife. So... You know, the, George, uh, before he died, um, put out a 30th anniversary version at the start of 2001. And there's a, an EPK, an electronic press kit you can see online where he's yep. recreating the cover in his 2000 guise. And um, it was a reissue that he was intimately involved in. And sadly, it just gave us a, a, slow, a small insight into, you know, what he might have planned to do for the rest of his catalog because he writes a charming enough essay up the front of yes of it i mean the, the it's, it's worth getting the sleeve notes are are are, are as you say charming and there's a five bonus mm. tracks uh which are sort of worth hearing um there's the reworked version of my sweet lord which i i know you're a big fan you know, of i was that. trying to think after we talked about it on the my sweet lord episode i was uh, i was realizing i didn't buy that 2001 reissue at the time how did i know my sweet lord so well and i realized these were the days of Napster back in ah. 2001. And so one of the first things I Napstered was My Sweet Lord 2001. And kids, it's, don't, it's destroying music. Don't. Home taping is killing music. Yeah, uh, is there a statute of limitations on I that? I hope so. Maybe you have to Hopefully edit that it's about right? 19 and a half years. Um, um, but yeah. And, and he, of course, he, he reworked the artwork on, on the album. Yes. And he kind of, uh, you read the sleeve note and he sort of says, oh, the world is getting concreted over and everything's terrible. And I've redone the, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure he objected to some Henley on Thames planning applications in his time. I think, I, I, I think he objected to everything. Um, but, but the, but, but. The record label on which it comes out in 2001 is Gnome Records. Yes. And you think that's funny. And again, but how do you spell Gnome? G-N-O-M symbol. Ah. Ohm symbol. You see what he did I there? It's did another there. one of those unfunny puns. But I was, like, I'd forgotten until, you know, we're kind of looking, looking at it today that this was a big hit back in 2001. It, it was huge. It, it debuted at number four on the Billboard, Billboard album chart and Capitol Records had not produced enough Yeah, I remember copies. it being a very big deal at the time. 
Yeah, it was huge. Uh, I I bought it on CD at the time, and it it, it was only years later that I picked it up on. Uh, on vinyl, but but they were pretty flat-footed. They completely underestimated how popular this was going to be. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier on, you know, my original CD was you know from the, the late eighties, and and that was uh, you know in one like, of those big chunky like fat big boy chunky. I used to boxes. have that, and I have no idea where it went. Um, yeah, where you get the bit of foam inside. Ah, they were the days. Yeah. And um, the two thousand one reissue kind of, as we mentioned earlier, kind of rejigs the tracks that it's album one and album two with bonus tracks on disc one and the the Apple Jam as bonus tracks on on disc two. Um, there's a couple of other reissues over the year. There's a fortieth anniversary um, vinyl version in twenty ten. Yep, um, that's the one. That's the one to get. And it, the the sticker on the front of that says quite pointedly: two George Harrison LPs and one Apple Jam session. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> had you written in at that point I, I don't that wasn't i was not the proof uh, writer um i think that was a record store day oh, was release it? Yeah. In, in america it was limited to seven thousand uh copies and they restored the original artwork and get one if you can okay that's the uh that's my advice uh, there. and then it was remastered again for the apple years box set in 2014 yep. and uh, also came out on cd at that time uh, you know, we've talked an awful lot about songs. There's a lot of songs that didn't make it. You know, I Live For You turned up as one of the bonus tracks on the 2001 reissue. And that's got yep. some 2000 uh, Danny Harrison, George Harrison drumming and guitaring on it as well. But it's a nice yeah, song. I mean, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He basically, they they sort of overdubbed on the original original uh, tracks from 1970. And other but songs the, but... that have been recorded are... Um, uh, Gopla Krishna going down to Golders Green, Dara they're definitely recorded, we think, aren't they? They they, they were there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've heard you can get these on, on bootlegs. Uh, Beautiful Girl was another one, turns up on 33 and a third. Um, Cosmic Empire, Mother Divine, Down to the River, which he turned into a song called Rockin' Chair in Hawaii on Brainwashed, and a song called When Every Song's Been Sung, which... Mm-hmm. Ringo recorded for Rotogravure. That's the one that Ringo covered. And as a result, George issued court proceedings against him. Blimey. So uh, do you remember that Aspel? Yes, they talk about that when they're suing and each other. Ringo just embarrasses George by saying, yeah, you know, the last time we were together, he sued me for, uh, and I've never really understood why. Ringo's version has a guitar solo that sounds very like George Harrison, right. but it's by Lon Van Eaton. And I suspect <laughs> that that might be... He, George felt he was trying to pass this off that George was there or playing or something. So, so you know, all this talk of extra tracks and mixes and things uh, brings us into uh, what a 2021 All Things Must Pass will be. So since we began this odyssey of talking about All Things Must Pass on Nothing Is Real, um, essentially our dreams have become much closer to reality because it, yeah. we've been told... Not explicitly, but in, in the strangest, most coded terms, that there's a big All Things Must Pass project coming On next way, year. Yeah. So as we mentioned already, there's the 2020 remix of uh, the title track, which I do like. You know, it's a different I'll, I'll, vibe. I'll probably, I'll probably learn to love it. And, you know, I'm assuming that whatever... You know, let's let's take a guess at what's going to be on the box set because uh, you know the what the, the original double album part minus Apple Jam is seventy six minutes. You can fit that on one CD if you want. Yeah. So, I guess in a box set we're going to get you know the Spectre version is going to be there. They can't take it out. No. You know they're, they're um, and then we're going to get a remixed version of All Things Must Pass. 
Yes, and then what else? Well, the Beware of Abco demo. We're, I, I would like to hear the whole the, thing. The, the whole, effectively, his equivalent of the Isha demos, where he just yeah. sat down in May and and played the entire back backlog of songs to, uh, to fill Spectre. Then there's those unreleased songs that we just mentioned a second ago. So that could be another part of it. Songs that yeah. were completed with the band. Yeah. Then there's going to be a massive alternate takes because George describes recording the album as whatever mass of musicians would be in the room, they would run the song down a number of times to refine the arrangement and then get their take down. And we're assuming that chunks of those are on tape somewhere. They they must all have been recorded. And say we started this by saying, you know, we've lots of anecdotal evidence. So again, in in, in the Phil Collins autobiography, he he describes just take take after take of that song until his hands were bleeding. Um, Frampton says the same. Everyone describes the same method of working where you just had dozens and dozens of musicians um, uh, in the studio. And Bobby Whitlock talks about... um, you know, whenever the take was over, all of the musicians would pile into the control room to listen to it, which is Phil Spector did not care for this at all. You know, in his world, he stayed in the control room. So so take after take after take was run down. And there are dozens of, it's a heavily bootlegged um, uh, set of sessions, you know, and the, these bootlegs run to six, seven, eight CD sets. So there's a mm. lot there. Um, my, my concern is going to be that we're, it'll, it's going to be like Abbey Road or Sgt. Pepper, where you get you know, one version of each song. Well, you know. e- e- but even like one version, it, it, you know, we're still talking about the potential for something huge, you know, the the Spectre album, the new album, you know, a new disc the, of the, jams, the songs that didn't make it, the alternate the dem- takes the demo version, tape. the yeah, demo so, tapes. Uh, uh, and then, you know, it would also be, depending on what way the original multitracks are in, it, it'd be a good surround sound mix as well. I I would be surprised if there isn't a surround sound mix mm. just given given the nature of the songs. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, Spectre's negative influence on this for me anyway, I think is really overstated. I yeah. mean, I, I like the production. There are one or two songs. I've already said Wah Wah, which was the first song recorded, I think is just very overpowering. But, uh, you know, George says himself, we only did four or five tracks before Phil fell over. Yeah, you know, so he was so out of it, and if you recall on the Plastic Ono Band episode we did, you know, John and Yoko were recording later in the year. They had to put ads in the paper, like Phil, we're ready. Where are you? Yeah. So it seems to me, let it down. Hear me, Lord, out of dying, awaiting on you all. Wow, wow, and George spaces those out one essentially one per side. Well, um, the notion of space in the night, you know, an album like All Things Must Pass. You ask questions like, hey, could it have been a single LP? You know, people always ask that about the White Album and, uh, and all the rest. Is there yeah. a killer? I've tried doing this on Spotify and it's, you know, you, you can make a great 45 minutes of music, but, you know, as you can imagine, you kind of miss that spread, which is part of the album's Yeah, and, and, and if you take the Spectre tracks out, you suddenly realize that a lot of it is effectively an acoustic yeah. album. There's quite a pastoral sound to it. So you've got... Uh, you know, I'd have you any time, and Sir Frankie Crisp, and Beware of Darkness, and and uh, so so these are quiet, uh, acoustic-based songs, and then suddenly you've got these great Phil Spector, and I I genuinely think the the Spector influence is is overstated. Yeah, I, 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 it is a fantastically sequenced album. You know, yeah, it it really 
you know, it really is makes a, a difference, you know, and you, you know, we've, we've spoken in this season about the, the debut solo albums, but even you look at something like the, the opening track on each one, you think of the lovely Linda, you think of mother, you think yeah. I'd have you anytime. Yeah. They are three very different first steps of a, of a journey, you know, um, I, I, that that to me is one of the fascinating things is is the the three directions in which the three main songwriters mm. headed, and also the fact that that the the one who strode out onto the stage sort of as the solo artist, because again, you know, John's working with Yoko, Paul has got Linda on board, George is just kind of striding out there as a solo artist, but bringing all of his kind of heavy friends, mm. and he's almost showing off. Uh, his his kind of range of of contacts, you know, who's in his Rolodex that he can get, and uh, he works very easily with these people. Is it his best solo album? Is that a redundant question? It is really. Good. I I think it I think it probably is. I think the difficulty is it it casts such a shadow. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like Citizen Kane. So you know, you you've like Orson Welles' first film, George's. It just everything is is then. Uh, measured against that and although yeah. you know think that things like cloud nine because it doesn't have that sound it, it, it all everything that comes after seems slightly diminished by having to follow all things must pass yeah i mean when you get into the talk of well could it have been a single lp you know you know a version of that as well could he have done two great albums you know one for yeah. 1970 one for 71 you know or you know, one, 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 one at the end of 70 and one at the start of 72, you know, if you start to bring in some of the latest, I mean, it's all, it's all happenstance. I mean, it's, I, yeah, it, I, my, my own sense is I think it, it just had to be, it has to be what it is. It had to be a double album yeah. of songs, you know, it, it had to be a double album. Is it the best solo Beatle record? Again, I would say yes. Okay. Um, uh, so I don't end. know. <laughs> I, it's I certainly think the best I mean, solo Beatle record of 1970. I'll give you that. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I don't think that, and again, we're, I'm just kind of like alienating huge sections <laughs> of our, our, our listeners. I, I don't think anything that John did measures up. I think the only album that could is Plastic Ono Band. Um, but I think... All Things Must Pass is a much more listenable album. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Eddie Robson on Twitter said it's uh, just, I don't know if you saw that, he just the last yeah, couple of days and he said, you know, Plastic Owner Band, it's a fantastically impressive piece of work that I don't ever feel the need to listen to. And, you know, it's it, it's not a friendly, listener-friendly album. Yeah. It's a, You can respect it as a great piece of Art. And we said at the start of all this that All Things Must Pass is a, is a great album for people who don't like the Beatles. And, you know, I, the, the question I've never been able to figure out about Plastic Owner Band is, can you enjoy it if you don't know who John Lennon is? You know, if you don't, if you're not buying into some of that story, you know, that's an important I, part of listening to that record. I think that's that's absolutely spot on. I think that's incredibly insightful, where, where it's if, you, if you're not invested in Lennon the story or Lennon the man, Lennon the character, those songs don't resonate paul you know has paul produced an album as good as that i mean i don't think he produced anything as good as that until he gets to, to band i mean on it's the apples run. and oranges you know paul paul is not going to write a song like hear me lord he's just not no that's no, not in his wheelhouse but it's not why he's paul <laughs> so and, no, and, and, no. and that's why george is george i think the album i mean the first album that paul does that comes close to it is is 
band on the run. Mm. I think that's the that's the contender. Um, I, I you know from later in it's it's so hard to because you're so far removed in in years and in sound and production styles and all that has gone before and you know everyone all of them everyone you know their muse starts to kind of yeah. slip away or go in different directions so i think it's hard the ringo's album from 1973 i i love that album well let's let's just kind of touch upon one or two more things then before we wrap it up because you, you you know you talk about things kind of fading away and I guess in terms of George's follow-up or, or what he did next, because we know that he spends pretty much all of 1971 sorting out the concert for Bangladesh. And, yeah. you know, you think of alternate histories, like, you know, if he had pulled together a version of his 74 tour in 71, that was a bit like the concert for Bangladesh and took that across North America. Yeah. Could that have sealed the deal a bit more, you know? Um, I, yeah, there was, a, there, w- there was a huge kind of stratospheric launch of his solo career. Mm. Um, uh, and you, you kind of touched on it uh, in the previous episode about this being all pervasive. This, this my sweet lord is everywhere. Uh, but that also elevated George. And and um, the, the, there's, I think it's John Harris. Maybe talks about you know he was the most powerful man in mm. rock music mm. by the time that 1973 came along because he immediately went into Bangladesh, which was seen as this great sort of innovative move and very philanthropic and and so he's coming off the back of that uh and then the next thing is give me love give me peace on earth which is a number one big hit yeah u.s single so 73 he's but living in the material world is sort of all things must pass light yeah um but i think you're right i think if he had if he had had the the sort of willingness or the ambition and i think that's probably the key word is ambition if yeah. he'd had the ambition to build on that but he um, and it's not that he wasn't ambitious but i think he thought ambition wasn't a virtue or wasn't necessary yes i think and i that's think fine. yes and again that's another big distinction between himself and paul yeah. you don't you don't have a sense that george is kind of chasing hits and chasing yeah. and doesn't want to do that and he kind of has been through all of that and he's satisfied i think his ambitions with all things must pass and concert for bangladesh and then after that everything is on a lower scale he yeah. then tries to do something sort of noble i suppose in his eyes with the 74 tour about introducing indian music and it's a precipitous fall from grace Mm. um you know he was so high riding so high in 1973 and then it just collapses in 74 so finally what do you think is the album's legacy how do you i mean it, it has a certain immediate legacy i think in the 70s where do you see it today it's it's funny because it's the acoustic songs yeah that i think uh, or provide its lasting legacy. I mean, someone wrote saying, you know, Elliot Smith wouldn't have had a career uh, but for yes. uh, the acoustic All Things Must Pass. You get people like Sean Mullen doing cover versions. You get, you know, when they have George Fest, you, you suddenly have, uh, you know, Weird Al, uh, <laughs> Conan O'Brien, all your favorites uh, turn up. You, you know, it, it, it does seem to have that kind of um, resonance with, with the next, generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. Yeah, there's kind of in the last 10 years, there's kind of been a new acoustic kind of thing. So I'm thinking of groups like Fleet Foxes who kind of have yes. a... Yes, it, have a and, 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 yeah, and it, it, it kind of, that that is exactly you think uh, of, of songs like um, I'd Have You Anytime and mm. uh, Frankie Crisp and, and uh, those, it, it does, it feeds into that. And it's, you know, again, Here Comes the Sun, Spotify, all that, it's... It, 
it, it feeds into that. Uh, and you talk about George Fest, which is an interesting counterpoint to the concert for George, you know, because it's yes. uh, it's a different group of musicians. And it's got Britt Daniel from Spoon, who are a band I love. He does a great I Me Mine. And, yes. and it's interesting to see, it's interesting to see that kind of group of mainly LA-based musicians taking this kind of, basically, this, this yeah, very it, curious it, English hymnal, <laughs> religious yes. music and yes. filtering through their, their, their own work. It's very, very good. And what I, what I would say about George Fest is it's fun. Everybody is having fun, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think we have talked a lot about this all is, things must pass. This is, but, but have we said enough? <laughs> There's so much to say. You certainly, um, we certainly have, um, you probably could have either listened to all things must pass in, uh, in, in less time than it's taken for us to talk about all things must pass. Yeah, easily. But, but such is the way it's, uh, it's an album that's 50 years old. It's worthy of all the accolade. It's, it's worthy of uh, all this discussion and time. And um, it's good to know that uh, in 2021, we're going to be looking at some kind of masked redo of the whole redo thing. Redo of it. And, and, and what people will be looking forward to most of all is uh, All Things Bus Pass uh, episodes four, five, and six <laughs> as we review the box set. All, yeah. Well, maybe they could put uh, this podcast inside the box set. Wouldn't that be yeah, nice? Right uh, to download, your... Put a download link to this podcast. <laughs> um, that'd be great. But what do you think, everybody? Uh, we say it all the time on this show. You know, there, our main goal is to send you uh, running back to your record or CD shelves or whatnot and uh, having another listen. Um, and hopefully, uh, having gone through all things must pass with a bit of a fine tooth comb, uh, you'll feel compelled to do the same. But do let us know what you think. Uh, we're available in all the usual places. We're on Twitter, at Beatles Pod. Uh, uh, we have the private Facebook group. Ask Stephen and he will let you in and you can uh, chat away to all the other like-minded souls there. And um, thank you for all your subscriptions and downloads. And uh, if ever you feel like giving a nice review, every single one of them, we see them and they're appreciated. Thank you very much. Uh, but for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been a very long Nothing Is Real. We'll see you next time. Nothing Is Real is powered by Acast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.